the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The good deposit entrusted to you keep. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. We begin today with 2 Timothy 1.14 in the Greek, one of the most important passages, verses in all the Bible. Paul says to young Timothy at the outset or the early years of Timothy's pastoral ministry, very simply, this charge, the good deposit entrusted to you, keep. Tain kalain parathekain phulaxon. If you wanted a verse or a snatch of a verse to put on a little notepad or note card or on your phone or something like this as a young pastor, a young man in ministry, hearing the Apostle Paul speak to you almost 2,000 years later, this would be a very good candidate. This is basically what the pastor must do. This is really the foundational reality of all pastoral ministry. Pastoral ministry is fundamentally about keeping the good deposit, never letting it go, never letting anyone pry it out of your hands, never losing your interest in it, never losing your zeal for it. You have a deposit, Paul is saying to Timothy. There is the message that Paul has preached and that he now charges Timothy to preach. And Timothy now must keep this good deposit, must hold it firmly. It's not that he needs to put it on the shelf behind him. It's not that he puts it in a cabinet somewhere or a box in the attic. No, it's that the good deposit is always in his hand. It's always there for him to hold fast to. He can never let it go. It, it's not just a part of his ministry. It is his ministry. There is no Christian ministry without the good deposit, without the gospel, the word of Jesus Christ. There is no Christian faith without the good deposit. There is no church without the good deposit. God has staked everything on his son in spiritual terms. And then God has ensured that there be this gospel message that is the very fountainhead of the church of Jesus Christ. If you have the good deposit, if the pastor keeps it and preaches it and loves it and holds it close and guards it, then you have a church by the grace of God working there. If the pastor lets go of the good deposit, lets it slip puts it aside, becomes excited about other ideas, other systems, there will ultimately be no church. There is only a church because there is a good deposit. It's not just Timothy that has to keep this. It is every pastor of every local church, every elder of every local church who is entrusted with the gospel. That is, with the promotion and defense of the gospel in a given local church. This is the most important work there is on planet Earth. Not because we fall prey to a Roman Catholic sacerdotalism, where priests do the important stuff and the, the layman's life doesn't really count, or this sort of thing. No, because if there is no good deposit at the center of the church, there will ultimately be no church. I grew up in beautiful New England. I grew up in coastal Maine. And if you drive throughout Maine and New England, one of the most pleasant aspects of the region you encounter are all these traditionally built white church buildings. You find them even to this day in 2022 in just about every hamlet, village, town, and city 
of New England, white church building after white church building. They are beautiful to behold. They're often the crown of a given town. As you drive in, for example, on a winding road into a town, you will not infrequently see at the very heart of the town a steeple rising before you. This is exactly what was true of the local church that I went to in East Machias, Maine, First Baptist Church of East Machias, where I grew up going, a a small 40, 50 person congregation. As you rounded the bend into East Machias, Maine, you would see FBC East Machias, First Baptist Church, uh, rising before you. And that's true of so many church buildings throughout the region. But here's the second reality about those church buildings. They're not just aesthetically beautiful. In tragically many cases, they are now spiritually bankrupt. There are many reasons why, but at base, what happened in one denomination, network, and church after another is that pastors and elders did not keep their hold on the good deposit. If you don't do this, nothing less than the loss of the church will occur. The good deposit entrusted to you keep. 2 Timothy 1.14. This is not fun and popular work in terms of broader cultural respectability and acceptance. You will not get applauded by people around you for doing serious gospel work, serious gospel defense, serious gospel proclamation. In at least a good number of contexts, this is exactly what is going to put you in the cultural crosshairs. If you think that sounds a little heated up early in this humble little podcast, I would encourage you to reconsider the book of Acts and see just how culturally acceptable and applauded The gospel promotion that the apostles do is throughout that book. The gospels, the the, the apostles, excuse me, are so frequently attacked for proclaiming and defending the gospel. And ultimately, 11 of the 12 apostles, according to the scripture and church tradition, will be martyred in the work of the gospel. It's strange, though, because we all know that any anyone who studies the apostles and the book of Acts and gets along in the Christian faith and hears about what happened to the apostles, knows that fact. And and so we know that the work the apostles did must have been very hard work. But today there is a kind of sense that there isn't really a scandal of the gospel, a sting of the gospel, a cost of the gospel. If there's a cost of the gospel, it's probably, it seems to be the case in many people's minds, it's probably that you've asked for it. It's probably that you've preached the gospel badly. It's probably that you've upset unsaved people or your government, whatever it may be, rightly. And, and so it's, it's right <laughs> that you be persecuted for the gospel. It's right that you suffer as a Christian. You deserve it. In the last few years, along these lines, as I've talked about on numerous podcasts, professing Christians have in many cases been the loudest in opposing bold gospel preachers in the midst of lockdowns throughout our world. That gives us a little taste here of how there is a sense today that if you are doing things right, you won't really make any waves, you won't really draw any fire. Beyond even that, there then seems to be the supposition that being a preacher or a teacher of God's Word really should land you in a culturally acceptable and even culturally popular place. If you're doing things right, if you're loving your neighbor and loving God, then basically, this seems to be the working, often unstated assumption of a good number of folks today who profess to be a Christian, even profess to be Reformed, then you won't really make waves, you won't really have enemies, uh, you won't really have a cost to the Christian faith. Again, I repeat myself, If you are experiencing a cost, it is probably because you have been some version of a gospel-driven idiot. And so what needs to happen is that mainstream evangelicalism or mainstream reform types need to separate from you because you're one of these barn burners out there who's causing their reputation problems. 
We're going to talk more about that as we go here today. What I want to do in the time that remains before us is give you four principles of guarding the gospel. First, we need to guard the gospel by preaching the true gospel. We need to honor 2 Timothy 1.14 by proclaiming Christ. I think of a parallel passage here. Uh, that Paul uh, says to Timothy, or s- says to Titus, excuse me, Titus one nine. In Titus one nine, Paul says that the elder must give instruction in sound doctrine. So the fundamental way to bring these two texts together, that the elder, the teacher of the word of God, for the church of God, helps the people, is by proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the glories and excellencies of Christ, giving instruction in sound words in life-giving words. What an inestimable privilege and joy to proclaim Christ, to preach the true gospel. That is an absolutely vital part of how pastors and elders and local churches more broadly keep their hold on the good deposit. You simply keep proclaiming week after week the true gospel. This doesn't mean, of course, that All a pastor preaches is literally the formulation of the gospel, by the way. That view seemed to catch some traction in the Reformed resurgence of roughly a decade ago. And so from time to time, I'll see people who who say something on social media like, sometimes people get upset because I preach the gospel every week. What else is there to preach? Well, I believe that every sound sermon is going to point to the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ in some form. But I also believe, of course, that when Paul is saying give instruction in sound doctrine, the gospel is at the heart of that sound doctrine, but we preach the whole counsel of God. So we're preaching all the books of the Bible. Pastors should not only be New Testament preachers, for example. We should preach the whole Bible. We haven't been given just a New Testament. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And we can proclaim Christ And we can make the connection to the doctrine of salvation from every place in Scripture in some form. Uh, But what we're doing is not simply every single week repeating the same message. We should be in all different genres of Scripture and coming at the text in order to be faithful to it, wanting to be in different books, wanting to be in Old and New Testament in different places. And so we're providing our people a rich banquet of sound doctrine with always, as I say, the gospel at the center. So if you don't love proclaiming Christ and preaching the true gospel, you're probably, you are in the wrong field. You have the wrong profession or a better term, the wrong vocation, because preachers and teachers of the word of God, elders of the local church, whether they are vocational slash staff or not, are those who delight in and exult in the gospel of divine grace that forgives sinners like us. This is ultimately what we offer people. We don't ultimately offer them a a stinging view of sin. We do that. But we ultimately offer them the unsearchable riches of forgiveness in the name of and by the work of Jesus Christ. We are offering people the miracle of miracles on a weekly basis, forgiveness. By that, I don't mean, of course, that the local church preaching event is a kind of fresh revival service every week, Uh, but I do mean that from all the corners of the Word of God, we are proclaiming forgiveness in Christ ultimately. We're proclaiming that to unbelievers who join the church, yes, but we're also proclaiming that miracle afresh from from different angles, as the Word uh, uh, teaches us, to the church. The church, you see, is not geared to unbelievers. The church is geared to the church, to the people of God. And so pastors announce the miracle of forgiveness to Christians. We need to hear, yes, about initial salvific forgiveness, but we need to hear that in Christ we're forgiven every single week, day, hour, and minute we live. We, we need hope. We need to be reminded that though we come into the church service every week with real sin, having been committed in the week prior, in Christ, through repentance and fresh faith given us by God, we're forgiven. 
So this is what pulpits exist for, to proclaim sound doctrine, to proclaim the whole counsel of God, to proclaim the gospel, to announce the miracle of miracles, forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we need to guard the gospel. Preachers and teachers, men, need to guard the gospel in the context of the local church by rebuking those who contradict it. Here again, I'm bringing together 2 Timothy 1.14 and Titus 1.9, the second part of it. We need to, as Paul says there, rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. It is not then, friends, just that we lay out ungodly or unsound ideas. It's that you and I, those of us who have been given the incredible privilege of being a preacher and teacher of the Word of God, have to specifically rebuke men, people, individuals, human beings who contradict sound doctrine. If this is all we do, something is off. That's not a healthy way to live, and we all must watch ourselves uh, from all these angles that we are talking about here. We all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2. It is definitely possible to, to be so zealous for sound doctrine that you end up only rebuking those who contradict it. And that's that's just not ultimately a helpful way to live. It's not really healthy. Um, you, you want to be doing what I talked about first, intentionally, giving instruction and sound doctrine. Nonetheless, it's not a lesser calling to defend the gospel. You You go on offense, you proclaim the gospel as a preacher and teacher of the word of God, but you also play defense and you rebuke those who contradict it. This is what Paul did. Think about what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 19 to 20, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, uh, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So if somebody is not holding fast to sound doctrine, if an elder specifically is not, they need to be rebuked in the presence of all. This is a very sobering word from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5, 19 to 20. We think as well about how Paul does just this, not so much in the context of the local church, but in his writings, which of course were aimed at local churches. Let me give just a few examples of how Paul named false teachers. 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. 2 Timothy 1.15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 1 Timothy 1.19-20, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And then 2 Timothy 2.17 as well, their talk will spread like gangrene, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. This is Paul putting into practice what he calls Timothy, Titus, to do. He is guarding the gospel by warning the church about those who are bringing unsound ideas into it. This is what elders have to do. This is what pastors and teachers must do. We have to, in some cases, where it is called for, name false teachers and identify what they are teaching that is false, and we have to thus protect the sheep. We are not chartered by God as a society for intellectual stimulation. We are not first and foremost, as local churches, uh, havens for cosmopolitan consideration of new ideas. Christians love the life of the mind. Christians enter into the life of the mind. Christians engage it. Christians should be those who love God with all their mind. Matthew 22. That's literally the part of the greatest commandment that is given to us by Christ. And yet... We must also take care, and there is some real work here that needs to be done to synthesize these realities so that we do not come away with an unsound idea of unchristian thought. Paul is very careful, isn't he, 
about false teachers. Peter is too. False teachers come up over and over again in the Bible and in the New Testament. False teachers are a real danger. Do not historicize false teachers. Do not think that false teachers were this weird, wacky, far-out problem in the first century that has now gone away. False teachers were a problem then, and false teachers are a problem now. We learn of them that they are, Acts 20, 29, fierce wolves who seek to enter the flock, who have sharp teeth, and who are after sheep, the people, pastors, and elders, shepherd. This is not some kind of neutral or peacetime framing. This is a framing that calls for great care on the part of pastors and elders and those who are called in the local church or in related settings to teach the Word of God. I'm thinking of seminaries by extension or colleges and universities or Christian schools or this sort of thing. Our first charter is not to prove to fellow Christians or unbelievers that we are intellectually broad in our interests. If you listen to this podcast, for example, long enough, you'll know that I am fascinated by different facets of culture. I engage unbelieving thought. I watch movies at times and think about them. I read books not written by Christians. On and on it goes. So there is a clear place for that kind of conversation. Common grace is real. Cultural engagement is real. Having a vivified Christian mind is a glorious reality. But we're always thinking and engaging fallenness with care, with spiritual sobriety. We recognize when we read, for example, a book that is written by an unsound thinker, that we are not on the solid rock of God's word. And we don't enter blithely and lightly into such a venture. We recognize in that regard that we are on enemy territory, so to speak. We, we have our defenses up, not in the sense that we don't listen to what others say, but we recognize that we need to take real care. We need, to, we need to act as if false teaching is a major threat to the church, to our faith, individually, because it is. Friends, let me just say a personal word here. I have seen very few students in my, I think it's now 12 years, maybe 13 years of teaching, uh, drift from the Christian faith. Praise the Lord. That is not because I am in any sense a great teacher. That is not because I have kept my students single-handedly from error and slippage. It is all because of the grace of God. Whatever good there is in my preaching and teaching ministry is all because of God, not because of me. I haven't seen many students drift, but I have seen a few. I've had enough uh, cracks in the batting cage to see some things go awry, a few things go awry. There's not a long line of that by any stretch, but there have been a few, and they haunt me. Those students who walked away from sound doctrine haunt me. I, I don't know that I have had a student uh, fully deny the Christian faith under my teaching. Uh, I've had one student uh, basically opt into a kind of liberal universalistic Christianity, that is no Christianity at all. And I've had another student drift out of strong conservative Christian doctrine into a far less stable place. And I will tell you this, both of those instances break my heart. Um, if, if you see me in my tiny little corner of things trying to take a stand for truth and trying as best I can uh, to be bold and these sorts of things, and, and you would come away thinking that I am unfeeling as a few people on social media may may allege, I assure you the very opposite is the case. Uh, 
this is not true of just me. Anyone who seeks to be a faithful Christian preacher and teacher will basically always remember those who drift. In one case, a student read a book that I assigned and made very clear did not represent a sound approach to the Christian faith. I wanted my students to get some reps in the aforementioned batting cage. I wanted them to read what this unsound voice was saying under my guidance, under my classroom instruction, clearly, in no uncertain terms, in order that they would then be able to proclaim and defend the Christian faith with special reference to this area of it, hermeneutics. But one student actually took the book that was assigned and drifted because of it. And it was very sad to me. And at this minute, recording this podcast right now is very sad to me. I didn't assign the book in question in a kind of freewheeling spirit. I assigned it soberly to be dead level honest with you. And yet still, that one makes me think. And I want to assert to you now that my own humbling example of having a student drift because of a book I assigned, I assigned for a very specific reason, I discussed it in class, I called out its errors, I warned my students from it, I was trying to equip them in proclaiming sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it, and yet, despite my intentions and best efforts, things went awry. I want you to hear this, whether you're a preacher and teacher of the word as a man of God or not. Hear this. These kind of realities do haunt us years later, and they should haunt us. False teaching, unsound teaching is desperately dangerous. It is not being presented in this form, I recognize, even by many so-called gospel-centered outlets today, a good number of um, voices out there would critique what I am saying as too conservative, obscurantist, or something like this. There are lots of things that people will say about you if you try to argue for biblically guarding the gospel. But know this. There is a decided lack of carefulness that I see in the teaching ministry of a good number of evangelical peers today, and it doesn't fill me with glee or happiness. It fills me with sorrow and a certain dread because we are called, all of us, to be very careful about false teaching, and about, more broadly, guarding the good deposit of the Christian faith with the gospel at the center of it. If we are not scrupulously careful, even if we are, people may drift. But if we are not scrupulously careful, we may rest assured that people will drift. I'm seeing this today as I've talked about on previous episodes of the podcast with regard to the thought of Thomas Aquinas, for example. Thomas Aquinas was clearly a brilliant individual. Thomas Aquinas said true things in different areas of theology. But Thomas Aquinas, as I laid out in my previous episode of The Antithesis, standardized and promoted In no uncertain terms, clear as a ringing bell at midday, the false gospel of Catholicism. Trent did nothing other than embrace what Aquinas had already taught, and Trent repudiated the reformational doctrine of Luther, Calvin, and others, a genuine recovery of the biblical gospel and biblical Christianity in no uncertain terms. And I am seeing fellow 
professing evangelicals today recommend Thomas Aquinas as if it is a small and glancing thing, and it is not. Let me say this. We have some freedom to try to figure out in our churches and in our classrooms, by extension, who we recommend, who we read, and who we engage. And there are, admittedly, gray areas. It's not easy, necessarily, to know who to assign and who not to assign. It takes wisdom and discretion and counsel and prayer. There is a case to be made for reading different theologians fundamentally that we disagree with as fellow believers, and then fellow believers we disagree with strongly, secondly, and then thirdly, we have to figure out how we handle those from their stated doctrine who are not believers. How do we engage that third group? Those who profess to be a Christian are taken to be a Christian by many around us, but who, as we consider their own stated doctrine, not our rendering of it, their sentences, their affirmations, clearly do not affirm the biblical gospel. Aquinas is in that third category in no uncertain terms. Aquinas's affirmation of indulgences, of penance for sin, of the infusion of Christ's righteousness, of baptismal regeneration, of numerous other areas, places him squarely and clearly outside the camp. Yes, he'll say some things about justification by faith that sound much like the reformers. The problem with Aquinas is that he will say both true sentences and paragraphs and then false ones. And so the one who would repristinate Thomas Aquinas as an evangelical, as a reformed evangelical, has not just a tall task, but an impossible task. But today, some of my peers in the theological academy and the church world are presenting Aquinas like he is one of us. And in so doing, hear, hear me once more. They are bringing before their people, in at least a good number of cases, uncritically, a very dangerous and unsound teacher. You see, Thomas Aquinas did not guard the good deposit. Thomas Aquinas does not deserve such a description. Thomas Aquinas is the one who loosened his own grip on the good deposit and who led many, many, many people to do the same. So this is a good example for us of a thinker who we engage who says true things on different matters, but who is very dangerous. And you can make a case for reading Aquinas in, in different settings. I get that. There are settings I could see reading Aquinas in. But if you do so, you must do so with nothing less than scrupulous carefulness, with knowing that his teaching in many areas, is deadly dangerous. And friends, it is part of the drift of our time that a good number of folks who are supporting Aquinas in Reformed and Evangelical circles are saying no such thing. You and I are not fundamentally about proving the broadness and depth of our personal reading at home. We are not fundamentally trying to establish with our intellectual peers, uh, just how diverse our reading list is, and thus what a cosmopolitan Christian thinker we are. We must be very careful. We must always have before us, in all the theological task, in all the shepherding enterprise, before every classroom we enter, we should think to ourselves, ringing in our ears, should be, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. How do I, as a preacher or teacher of the Word of God, as a man of God, imperfect, fallen, insufficient, how do I guard the good deposit here? That is not a simplistic reality. 
It is one that takes fear and trembling. It begins in fear and trembling. Trembling. The wisdom of God begins in the fear of God. Proverbs 1.7. It doesn't end with the fear of God. True wisdom, acquisition of wisdom, begins in reverential fear, not in self-trusting confidence. We need, thirdly, to guard the gospel by destroying the strongholds that take people captive. This means understanding systems of thought and those who create them. Pastor, you need to guard your church from false gospels. This is not all you do. Your central joy, your central work as a pastor or elder, a teacher of the church, is to proclaim Christ, to proclaim all sound doctrine from the whole counsel of God. But you must also guard the sheep. You must guard the sheep from wolves. We've already talked about rebuking people who contradict sound doctrine. It's not fun. It's not popular. It doesn't get you more followers. It probably loses you followers. It certainly loses you standing among a certain part of the academic guild. But Jesus did not die for an academic guild. Jesus did not die to set up a book reading club. Jesus died for his people. Jesus died for the church. Jesus' blood purchases back from the dead the church, the people of God. Jesus has invested his very blood in the church. This does not mean we don't have freedom to have different institutions. It doesn't mean, for example, that if you ever found a a Christian school, you've done something wicked because what the New Testament focuses on is the local church. No, you don't want to come to such a conclusion. But what you do need to make sure you always keep in front of your eyes is that Jesus did not die for a seminary, for a parachurch organization, for a publishing house, for a magazine, for a website. Jesus died for his bride. Jesus died for the church. And it is the church that Jesus has given elders to. There are two offices in the local church, deacon and elder. There is debate over whether deaconesses are allowed uh, by what Paul talks about in different places. I believe that men fill both offices, the office of deacon and the office of elder. For example, in Acts 6, when deacons are appointed, even though the dispute is primarily among women, there is not a woman deacon appointed. So let us be rebuked. Uh, if we think any kind of modern formulation like if there are problems among women, if women are being led astray or if women are are having conflicts of a practical kind in the local church, the one that needs to be appointed is women. No, that's frankly not who is appointed in Acts 6 to handle the dispute. It's deacons who are now appointed to handle the practical matter of food distribution. It's all men in order that the elders would be free to minister the word and pray. So there are two offices. By the way, there's a good amount of talk today. We'll probably talk about this more in another episode, God willing, about how we need to open up all sorts of space in the church so that we don't unnaturally tamp down women in it. There's a wide-ranging discussion to have about all that women do to serve and bless the church. They do they do a great deal just in the in the warp and woof of New Testament documents that you can pull out. But what we need to remember is that in terms of the offices of the church, the New Testament gives us only two, deacon and elder. And elders are those who have the responsibility of guarding the flock from false gospels. There's not this wide-ranging 19 different vocational office grid that emerges from the New Testament of those who are supposed to help the church. Different people can contribute. We have freedom uh, to a certain degree. You're listening to a podcast. And yet, we always want to connect whatever teaching ministry there is as much as we can to the offices of the church. 
So my my office is connected to a local church, a local church that has a seminary, and I am not a formal elder at this time, but this is seen as part of the overflow of the teaching ministry of the church. We want to do as much as we can to connect whatever teaching we offer to the local church format. All this means then that elders and teachers of the word of God must guard the the church from false gospels, and here are several. Pastors need to guard the flock from a therapeutic gospel, a gospel that makes your life better and has no real vertical frame. Pastors need to guard the sheep from a woke gospel that corrupts our understanding of the human person that sees some people as inherently wicked by virtue of their skin color, inherently problematic, and then makes the gospel not about uh, salvation from sin, but about the betterment of our world. Pastors need to guard the sheep from a works-based gospel. Uh, the, the Catholic gospel, for example, that is standardized at Trent is a works-based gospel, and we must definitely guard the sheep from it. Pastors need to guard the sheep from a pragmatic gospel, where what is preached and proclaimed is what works what what you like, what grows the church, what builds up the life that you want to have. You could connect this to the so-called prosperity gospel. Pastors need to guard the sheep from a lust-gratifying gospel, where what is proclaimed to people is that they're good the way they are, and they should actually lean into their desires and lusts of the flesh, and that's when they will know wholeness and happiness. That's very much out there on offer in our culture. We need to understand systems. We need to understand that 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 teaches us to destroy not a solitary idea, but a stronghold. A stronghold is a developed system. Christianity presents itself throughout the scripture as a system, as a coordinated system. You don't graft onto the Christian system, the biblical system, unbelieving elements. You get the system from the scripture. You don't get it from any outside voice. There's no unbelieving thinker, however brilliant, who contributes one molecule to the biblical system. It is God's system. God owns his truth. God gives his truth. His truth comes from him. It's heavenly truth. By extension, our gospel is a heavenly gospel. It is God's gospel. No element of the Christian faith owes to any unbeliever. None of it owes at all to secular thought. Yes, we engage secular thought. Yes, we engage unbelievers. Yes, we find elements of common grace in their body of thought. We find God's facts that they are, claim, they are claiming excuse me, as their facts in their systems. Some know more of God's facts, so to speak, than others. Some systems are better than others. Some systems are worse than others. Nonetheless, the biblical system is wholly dependent on the word of God for its development and its truth. Scripture is sufficient. And from that basis, we who by God's sheer kindness know and love the true biblical system engage all other systems— And as Paul says, we destroy them. We destroy them not so that we can walk away from an explosion without looking at it, trying to be cool as in a movie. We destroy strongholds in love. We love the people who are caught in false ideologies. We love the people who are not only believing false gospels, but proclaiming them. If I could talk with the architects of different systems of thought, I would bring no great shakes to the table, but I would love to talk with them and try to, in love, appeal to them and, by God's grace, call them to repentance and faith in the name of Jesus Christ. If I could talk to Thomas Aquinas, I would. I wish I could. I wish I could call him to the Christian faith, to repentance and faith in the name of Jesus Christ so that he would truly be born again and know the grace of God in Christ, the imputed righteousness, not the infused righteousness of Christ. 
We are out here in the public square. We are out here as theologians and teachers of the word, not for our own reputation, image, brand, standing, or popularity. We are here to minister truth in love. We are here to take many hits for Christ. We are here to say the hard truths that people neither want to say nor hear. In order that as the spirit blows, as God moves in the human mind and heart, people would be won back. People would be saved. People would be born again. That is the way fundamentally to love unbelievers, to love your unbelieving children, neighbors, co-workers, friends, and on it goes. It is always to seek to bring God's truth before them confront them with it, and ultimately preach the gospel to them. Of course, there's all sorts of ways we seek to show love to them in smaller forms. We, we all should and do. We should seek to do good to them as much as we can. But ultimately, we love unbelievers when we try working in the strength and power of God to destroy the strongholds that they have allowed to take them captive. That is love. That is why I say what I say in this episode and previous episodes. Some may allege that I'm here to try to win an academic battle or theological disputation. I have no such concern, I assure you. I would rather somebody else say a lot of the things I'm trying and imperfectly am saying here and elsewhere. I would rather someone else raise the alarm. That would be really nice. Trust me. It can feel today like there just are fewer and fewer folks who who will rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And there is a challenge embedded in that. But ultimately, it is of no account because I am hidden in Christ. My life is not my own as with every true believer. I am Christ's. I am only a slave. I am only here to proclaim the glory of my great God. I'm not here for myself. I'm not here to become great. I need to pray more and more that I would be like John the Baptist, that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. Fourth and finally, I need, you need, we need to guard the gospel, whether we are in teaching ministry or not, preaching ministry or not, by letting it permeate every facet of our being. We want to be those who are gospel-saturated people. We want to be those who will take strong stands, who will draw clear lines. That's absolutely what keeping and guarding the good deposit, 2 Timothy 1.14, means. That is absolutely what Paul calls for in proclaiming the whole counsel of God, the sound doctrine that is in Christ, and then rebuking those who contradict it. And yet, I, I very much want that sound doctrine, that gospel, to seep into all of my life such that I am a loving person. I am a forgiving person. I am a merciful person. I lead a grace-driven life. You see real joy in me. You see hope and happiness in me. And even saying these words, I'm convicted. I'm convicted because I know that I should yield more of such effects of the gospel in my life. And so I need to pray. I think many of us need to pray that we would see the gospel permeate every facet of our being more and more and more, that we would decrease and that Christ would increase and that even people would see more of Christ in me. That is my prayer. That is ultimately a major way that we proclaim God's truth and even that we guard the truth of the gospel. We don't live according to the flesh. We, we actually help to maintain our hold and the church's hold on the gospel, on the good deposit, by being transformed by the gospel. That is itself a living demonstration of the gospel. That is itself living in the power of the gospel. That is ensuring that by the grace of God in us, we don't drift. We are part of the body of Christ. We are a living body of the living God. 
So there's more to say here, but my prayer is that I and all who follow Christ so imperfectly as we do would know the permeation of every part of our being with gospel grace, gospel joy, and gospel hope. As I conclude here, I'm releasing this podcast just before Easter Sunday. What a fitting date on the calendar. A time in the year when, according to the church's tradition, we remember that Christ is risen. What is more hope-giving than that Christ is risen? Christ died for us in our sins, and Christ rose from the grave three days later. It is this truth that saves us. It is this truth that preserves us, and it is this truth that we must proclaim until God takes us home. It is this truth, in fact, that we must always world without end, as long as God gives us breath, as long as our heart beats guard. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>